Okay, well, thank you. Welcome, everybody. Um, what I was asked to do is to talk a little bit to answer your question, to talk about how do we use some of the new therapies in pediatrics. I'm going to use as much pediatric data as is available. I'll obviously need to use some adult data also. I also will talk about some of the studies that are underway right now. So when your parents, your patient's parents say, are these being studied, at least after this you'll be able to say yes. Uh, this is some of my disclosures. So let's talk about what therapies are available. There's ethylpurines and methyltrexate. These, as we all know, do not have FDA approval for the use in inflammatory bowel disease for any age group. Then we have the anti-TNFs. Infliximab have adult and pediatric approval for both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Adalimumab has adult and pediatric Crohn's uh, disease approval and adult UC. Surolizumab has adult Crohn's. Golibumab has adult UC. For selective adhesion molecules, we have natalizumab. That has an FDA approval, but it's a limited approval. It only can be used as a monotherapy. Fetalizumab has adult approval for both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Usakinumab has adult Crohn's. And then tofacinumab, or the JAK inhibitor, has approval for adult UC. So let's talk about each of these. The thiopurines. In large randomized placebo control trials, that these were adult studies, but they did use the Markowitz pediatric design. They were unable to show any efficacy when thiopurines were used as monotherapies when compared to placebo. These studies were 18 months, and another study was three years. And as we know, even in the Markowitz study, they were unable to show any linear growth in the pediatric patients who were exposed to monotherapy with the thiopurines. The benefit of combination therapy, I think most people would agree, it's a thiopurine's influence on the PK of the biologic. For serious adverse events, this is all pediatric data from the developed registry, there is a statistically significant increased risk of malignancies in thiopurine-exposed pediatric IBD patients. This is not just hepatic splenic T-cell lymphomas, this is multiple cancers, and this was not seen in the anti-TNF population. And then for adolescent EBV-naive patients that become thiopurine-exposed, this is male and female, they have a statistically increased risk of hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Now, how about the anti-TNFs? I'm not going to talk too much about these, but I do want to mention the importance to realize there's a large intra-individual variability in the pharmacokinetics of biologics. And the PK of infliximab in pediatric IBD is affected by multiple variables. So things that increase infliximab clearance would mean that you need to maybe use higher dosing or shorten intervals. And we all know about anti-drug antibodies, most seriously ill kids with high inflammatory burdens, low albumins, higher body weight. So your obese kids, you actually have to use a higher per kilo dosing in these patients, male gender. Things that decrease infliximab clearance is uh, immunomodulators. So it's important, at least my feeling is, it's important to do therapeutic drug, drug monitoring to optimize drug exposure for your patients to, again, improve outcomes. How about the anti-adhesion molecules? 
Well, we, need, we know that there needs to be some strategy that the inflammatory cell gets from the vasculature into the tissue to cause inflammation. This process is called adhesion. It involves a lot of ligands and a lot of receptors on both the inflammatory cell and the endothelial surface, and this allows these cells to migrate into the tissue to cause inflammation. Understanding this process, you could see there's a lot of different places we could block this therapy, this mechanism. So the first drug that came out is natalizumab. Natalizumab actually blocks two places. It blocks the VCAM pathway by blocking alpha-4, beta-1, beta and this blocks adhesion in the brain, bone marrow, skin, kidneys, and is probably the reason for the progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or the JC virus infection that we saw with this product. And it also blocks the alpha-4, beta-7 pathway or the MAPCAM pathway. This seems to be gut-specific. So the next generation adhesion molecule is vetalizumab, and this blocks only the alpha-4, beta-7, or the MAPCAM pathway, and so it should be gut-selective for immunosuppression. And people who went to the more, uh, session yesterday had seen that for vetalizumab, this is a Gemini 1 studies looking at ulcerative colitis induction at six weeks. And here you could see that the treatment group for response, remission, and mucosal healing was more likely than placebo to accomplish this endpoint. In this study, when they looked at therapeutic drug monitoring, they stated that the trough level should be greater than 35 at week six. And this had a durability of response. This is at 52 weeks. Again, uh, uh, steroid-free remission at that time. Now, the story for Crohn's disease is a little bit different. This is a Gemini 2. These patients were quite sick in this study. And if you do look here, though, at six weeks for Crohn's, there was a statistical improvement in clinical response, not a very good delta, though. And then if, uh, for remission, if you look at response, we were unable to show a difference between a treatment group and a placebo group. Now, if you do look at the 52 weeks for Gemini 2, again, this is Crohn's, there the treatment groups were statistically better than placebo. So it seems like it takes time for this drug to work in Crohn's disease. So next they did Gemini 3. With the Gemini 3 trial, um, uh, here they were able to show a difference uh, in response at six weeks and at 10 weeks. Again, the patient population was not as sick as in Gemini 2. But things, I think the interesting thing about Gemini 3 is you could see that the, at week 10 seemed like there was a greater response than at week 6. So again, works in Crohn's disease, but it takes a little time. These are some of the pediatric vetalizumab studies that have been published. The first one's a European study from the Porter Group. There were 64 patients. Then there was a multi-center study from US, which was 52 patients, a single center site, which was 21, and another single center site, which was 12. These were all retrospective. The majority of the patients had failed an anti-TNF. The regimens for dosing, 026 and maintenance every eight weeks. And if patients were over 40, they treated them just like adults with 300 milligrams IV. If the patients were under 40 kilo, the Porto group used 7.5 milligrams per kilo. The multi-US site used six milligrams per kilo. Um, at CHOP, we used five milligrams per kilo. And the uh, uh, Innsbruck site used six milligrams per kilo. Looking at the data from the Porto Group uh, study, here they looked at endoscopic scores. After induction of therapy, 14 weeks later, they did endoscopies, and you could see that the endoscopic improvement occurred both in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease at week 14. 
Now this is from the multi-site US study. And here, the y-axis is remission, the x-axis is time. And if you look here, the, the Crohn's is in blue and the ulcerative rate of colitis is in red. And early on, clearly the remission rates were higher in the ulcerative rate of colitis group. But if you follow these patients out for 30 weeks, you could see that now the remission rates for Crohn's disease and ulcerative rate of colitis were similar. Now, these are some of the studies going on right now in pediatrics IBD for vitalizumab. This is a multi-site study based out of Israel. It's both European and, uh, and North American sites, and hopefully within a few years we'll have some information from this study. This study is a Takeda study sp sponsored by the pharmaceutical company, and this was a phase, this is a phase two randomized double-blind dose-ranging study to determine pharmacokinetic safety and tolerability of vetalizumab in pediatric IBD. It's mostly a PK study looking at 14 weeks. At that point, they will also be looking at response for UC and Crohn's. Here I have the dosing, not that you're going to remember this high dose or low dose, but to look at this, this is what the pharmaceutical company feels is safe to use in pediatrics. So again, can this help us determine how we're going to treat our patients? So again, the vetalizumab was given 0, 2, and 6 in 14 weeks. The high dose was 300 milligrams if you were more than 30 kilos and 200 milligrams if you were under 30. For the low dose group, they used 150 for over 30 kilos and 100 under 30 kilos. Now, how selective is vetalizumab? Well, in the animal models of MS, the drug doesn't seem to work, so implying there isn't that brain effect that we had with natalizumab. Uh, also, there has been no cases of PML that have been attributed to vetalizumab. There has been one case of PML of a person on vetalizumab, but it seems like there was a lot of other covariables that put that patient at risk. The graphs below are looking at vaccine studies. So the first is a systemic vaccine, the hepatitis B vaccine. And here you could see that patients on vetalizumab had as good a response to this vaccine as the placebo. Then if you look at a, a vaccine that uses gut immunity, this is the oral cholera vaccine. And here you could see that the vetalizumab group did not respond well, again, supporting the fact of gut immunity. Of the products that we have right now, of the biologics and, many, and of the other therapies, other than maybe the five ASAs, this does seem to be the safest of the molecules. There has not been any increased risk of infections, and there's been no signal for malignancies. So in summary, pediatric UC, pediatrics responds earlier and has a higher emission rates than Crohn's counterpart. The pediatric dosing, and again, this is off-label, but I think what most people are using is six milligrams per kilo, up to 300 milligrams is commonly used. Now for uh, therapeutic drug monitoring, this paper was just published um, like two days ago. Um, it was out of the Belgium group. And what, this is a retrospective study. And for the patients that did well, they had fetal levels that were graded in 30 at two weeks or graded in 24 at six weeks and graded in 14 for maintenance. Now, the thing, though, is to realize this was a retrospective study. So you could say that milder patients had higher levels. So we need to do a prospective study to really answer this question about what's our target level. Now, there is some evidence to say that if you're a poor responder to every eight weeks, that you could go to every four weeks and it may improve efficacy. Okay, now how about the anti-intraleukin 1223? 
So the first drug that's out is usakinumab, and again, this is an anti-P40, and as we know now that there's a P40 subunit in both IL-12 and in IL-23, so by using this antibody, you actually block IL-12 and 23. For IBD, we really would rather block just only IL-23. Some of the newer products, this is a product, an anti-P35, which I think is going to be used for allergies, but there are multiple anti-P19s that will be selected against IL-23 that are in development right now. And again, you could just see here, again, blocking IL-23 or the IL-23 pathway seems to be associated more with the T-helper 17 pathway compared to the IL-12. So the usikinumab studies are called UNITY studies, and the design is Unity 1 and Unity 2. These were, both these were both induction studies. The first was you had to fail an anti-TNF to get into it. That was the earliest study. And then later you could just fail conventional therapy. And here patients received placebo, 130 milligrams, or six per kilo. And if they responded for either of these, Unity 1 or Unity 2, it was randomized into a 90 milligram sub-Q every eight or every 12 weeks, or placebo, followed out for 44 more weeks, which was a total of 52 weeks. And here you could see for induction, I'm sorry, for remission at eight weeks that the treatment groups were statistically more likely than placebo to accomplish this endpoint, and that if you were TNF naive, you probably had a better response. And this is just long-term durability that you can see that both treatment groups are better than placebo at 52 weeks. Now this is interesting. This is really a sub-analysis of that data. It looked at the change of abdominal pain from baseline in anti-TNF refractory patients with usikinumab. And here you could see that as early as one day after the IV infusion that there is an improvement in abdominal pain in the treatment groups when compared to placebo. And looking also at liquid stools, here as early as seven days there was an improvement uh, in the treatment group. So again, this drug can work fast. This is a pediatric study from Steve Facillo from our institution. He presented it at NASP again this year. And what he did is he took our usikinumab patients. These were pretty sick kids that have failed at least one, two, or three biologic therapies to get into the study. And he took patients who had a clinical response at six, uh, six weeks and showed that if you had a clinical response at six weeks, that you had a 61.5% chance of being in remission at 26 weeks. Only a 25% chance of remission if you were not responding at six weeks. These patients who also were responders at six weeks were more likely to have normal CRPs, uh, less surgeries, and more likely to be on drug at 26 weeks. Now this is the pharmaceutical study from Janssen looking at the pharmacokinetics of usikinumab in pediatric patients with moderate to severe active Crohn's disease. And here it's a 16-week study. Again, primary endpoint is PK, but they're also looking at response and remission, and as well as the long-term safety and immunogenicity. Now again, these doses, not to remember, but give an idea where the pharmaceutical company feels comfortable with, is they had a high dose and a low dose. The low dose was three milligrams per kilo for the IV induction if you're under 40, and 130 if you're over 40 kilos. The high dose was nine milligrams per kilo if you were under 40, milligram, 40 kilograms, and 390 if you were over 40. For the maintenance, and I think this is something that we probably follow in clinical practice, for maintenance, these are the sub-Q injections that you get every eight weeks. They use a two milligram per kilo dosing, and if, if you're under 40, and a 90 milligrams uh, syringe for if you're over 40 every eight weeks.
Now, looking at the pharmacokinetics of this drug, if you look at the first curve, um, first graph that's labeled B, this is looking at the serum user kinemab levels at week eight. So this is induction by quartiles. And what you could see is the higher the drug level, it seems like the better clinical remission. And if you do look at that quartile four, most of that is made up with the group that's a six milligrams per kilo IV. If you look at the graph below this, this is maintenance, and again, it's looking at usikinumab levels at week 24 by quartiles. And here, looking at a trough level, what they show is that if a trough level is between 0.8 and 1.5 or higher, you had an increased chance of a clinical remission. So again, you're saying the troughs need to be just like one or two. Now, this is contrary to an earlier paper which came out, which looked at week 26, and they said you needed a level greater than 4.5. But of note, they use endoscopic endpoints. Uh, it was a different assay. It was a small study and it was sub-Q induction. But I think what this really tells us, there's still more for us to learn about how do we target uh, using kinemab levels for care. One thing we do know is that this drug's not very antigenic, and so there's very low levels of anti-usikinumab antibodies. Because of that, there seems to be no significant impact of the immunomodulators on usikinumab levels or immunogenicity. So if you are a combination kind of person, with this particular drug, you could really consider not using that immunomodulator. Now dosing, this is adult dosing. It is somewhat weight-based. They look at 260, 390, and 520, uh, and then 90 milligrams sub-Q every eight weeks. Now for pediatrics, again, we need to have more studies, and this is off-label, but I would think most of us would agree that for induction, we're using six milligrams per kilo as induction for the IV. And then for the maintenance, again, following about a two milligram per kilo strategy, if you are greater than, and it only comes in 90 milligram syringes or 45 milligram syringes. So if you're more than 40 kilo, you could give the 90 milligram syringe. If you're less than 30 kilo, you could give the 45 milligram syringe. If you're between 30 and 40, uh, then I think it's clinician's decision if the kid's sicker, if the kid's closer to 30 kilos or closer to 40 kilos, may help you decide which syringe to use. So in summary, the NTP40 antibodies target 12 and 23 and seem to be effective in Crohn's disease. It works in both naive and experienced anti-TNF patients. We need to have these, these pharmacokinetic data available. It's unfortunate we don't have them before release of this drug. And there are some clinical trials underway right now showing that this drug is also uh, has efficacy in ulcerative colitis. Now, for the JAK inhibitor, again, we have tofacinib. It's the Octave trials, and again, sort of following the same story where there's two inductions and a maintenance, and this was a randomized double-blind control trial. And for the induction trials, they're both the same design. It was either placebo or 10 milligrams um, BID for eight weeks. The sustained trial or the maintenance trial was they added sort of an extra dose in there, so it was placebo, five milligrams BID or 10 milligrams BID, and they followed patients out for 52 weeks. And these are the induction trials for both uh, uh, remission and mucosal healing, and you could see that the treatment group of 10 milligrams BID um, was statistically better than placebo. For the sustained study, the same thing is seen, but again, there's a five milligram um, BID dosing in there. So, oh, this actually, this was updated, but I guess that set didn't make it. 
Um, so anyway, what was in that box is it talks about the induction dosing is 10 milligrams BID for eight weeks, and if the person's not responding well and is able to tolerate, you could do another eight weeks at 10 milligrams BID. Um, for maintenance study, for maintenance, I think most of us probably would drop down to five milligrams BID if the patient tolerates that. Um, the one thing I would say is I'm a little reluctant to use this medicine if you're under 30 kilos. I'm not sure exactly how to tell you to dose it. There is a large pediatric trial that's going to be starting in, um, in probably February or March. And I think if you have a little a kid who's this little, you probably should wait for the clinical trial to start. Now, how about the adverse events? Uh, well, infections are the ones that we talk about, particularly herpes zoster. The recommendation is that a person gets a zoster vaccine before getting this drug. You know, in pediatrics at CHOP, what we're doing is you have to have two documented varicella vaccines in order to be considered to get this drug. And I guess there's a little bit of a debate about titers. You know, there's a high false negative rate with the ELISA titer that we use. And so right now we're saying you have to have the two vaccines. I'd like to know what other people are doing. The other risk is increase in non-melanotic skin cancers. There was a couple of GI perforations in the study, unusual in ulcerative colitis, but um, it's hard to know how clinically significant this is. It, one concern is this JAK inhibitor does block IL-6, and in the anti-IL-6 trial, there was intestinal perforations. The other thing is it seems like there's an elevated in lipids, maybe a little less of an issue in pediatrics, but the recommendations is to check these levels probably in four to eight weeks after starting a drug. Enteral nutrition, I'm not really going to talk much about this. Can diet be used to treat pediatric IBD? I think most of the people in the audience here would believe that yes. I do feel that with the significant advances in the microbiome, that this is going to become a real science, and you're going to be seeing a lot about how we can look at microbiome signatures to predict who's going to respond to therapy, drug um, diet therapy, and maybe what diet's the best one to use. For refractory pediatric UC, uh, Anne mentioned this already, is about the consensus paper from our colleagues in Europe, and they were looking at acute severe colitis. And they came up with really three new recommendations. One is thrombosis prophylaxis, uh, use of oral antibiotics, and as Anne had mentioned about infliximab dose regimens for these severe colitis kids. So for venous thrombosis, thromboembolic events, the risk in kids is 9 in 10,000 or an odds ratio of 5, and their recommendations were that you should anticoagulate an adolescent if they have one or greater risk factors. These risk factors are smoking, OCP, complete immobilization, uh, central venal cat catheter, obesity, significant infections, or a history of thromboembolic events or disorders. If you're under puberty, you have to have two of these risk factors. Now, this is a PRASCO study. This was presented in Espigan by uh, Dan Turner. And what he did is looked at these patients that were either on steroids or steroids with antibiotics. The antibiotics were Venco, amoxicillin, metronidazole, doxy if you're older, and Cipro if you're younger. And what he showed that five days of these antibiotics, there was a significant improvement in the uh, PUCI um, in the patients who had received the antibiotics. 
But of note, and out of the paper, it states that taken together, a short course of oral antibiotic cocktails could be considered in selected severe refractory cases while preparing for colectomy. Antibiotics should be discontinued if no significant response has been observed in four to seven days. In any case, salvage therapy should not be delayed for the sake of this attempt. Uh, I think one thing we will be learning about at our institution, we have been looking at really microbiome signatures of these patients being put on antibiotics, and I believe there will be a microbiome signature that will probably say you should not use antibiotics because you are really increasing a worse outcome. Those papers should be available, hopefully, we're putting them together right now. Um, and already, uh, Anne presented this uh, well uh, in the previous lecture again, for these fulminant colitis kids that are in the hospital, you can't give them five milligrams per kilo and expect them to get better. The drug is cleared so quickly that you need to use higher doses if you want to try to avoid colectomy in this group. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>